Well, my family was very excited last summer when we were finally able to purchase our first home. And one of the first things we did was we uh, had a home inspection. And I'll tell you, the inspector did not do what I would have done. He did not open the door and run through the house immediately flushing all the toilets to make sure they worked. And he didn't stand back and kind of eyeball how square the walls would be in order to inform me how difficult hanging a picture would be. No, he didn't even run through the house and flick on all of the lights, which like my children do, to make sure there are no sparks. The first thing he did was got out of his truck, got a flashlight, got on his hands and knees, and started crawling around in the dirt to look at the foundation of this house. The inspector didn't really care what the house looked like if the foundation was sure. Now this morning, in Jesus' final words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shines a flashlight on each of our foundations. He scrapes away the dirt and his judgment regarding the home's construction will be based entirely upon the surety of its foundation, the surety of our foundation. So please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7 and follow along as I read beginning in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And with that, Jesus has concluded this sermon. Now, we have spent 18 weeks pressing into the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that only takes about 15 minutes to read aloud. And today, at the end of it, Jesus' call to his audience is simple. Obey. In this passage, Jesus is contrasting two people, two foundations, and two outcomes. And in this brief parable, he invites us to what he's been inviting us to all along. Citizens of the kingdom wisely believe Jesus and obey his words and are secure in him. Because citizens of the kingdom believe Jesus is who he says he is, they do what Jesus says to do and they find their security in him. That's how I understand it, at least. Admittedly, the Sermon on the Mount has been understood in, in more than two ways since it was first spoken. One of the most common ways that you hear people interact with the Sermon on the Mount is as wisdom for everyday life. Jesus is a wise teacher, a sage, if you will, teaching the way of wisdom. And in the sense of practical wisdom, this final call in the Sermon on the Mount could be understood to mean the outcome of your life is dependent upon the foundation on which your life is built. And there are only two options, the better of which 
is wisdom in obedience to Jesus. Now, in our present day, uh, the less popular opinion or way of understanding the sermon is the way in which the crowds actually heard the words Jesus spoke. They did not hear merely wise teaching. No, they heard the voice of authority speaking to them, inviting them to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And spoken authoritatively, these words, these final words in the Sermon on the Mount could be understood in a much stronger much more urgent sense. Before it is too late, obey me. Now you may notice those two options for understanding these final words in the Sermon on the Mount are not that dissimilar. Both present two options, both have a view of the end in mind, and both readings encourage obedience to Jesus. The primary difference then is not about how we understand the words of the sermon, But the fundamental question that I am pressing on you today is the same question that Jesus' audience was forced to reckon with, and that is, who is Jesus? What are you going to do with Him? Are you going to listen to Him as a wise teacher or as one who has absolute authority? Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, is Jesus' conclusion to the sermon, and His call or warning in these last verses is the same call, invitation, He's been making all along. So as we conclude our exposition of the Sermon on the Mount today, I think it will be helpful for us to review from the beginning this entire sermon through these two lenses. The first, Jesus as a teacher of wisdom. And the second, Jesus as the authoritative king. Because the answer to the question, what am I going to to do with this sermon, is answered by the heavier, weightier question, what am I going to do with Jesus? And the crowds listening to Jesus preach were clearly able to perceive the difference between the two. So, let's take a pass through the Sermon on the Mount and review the wisdom that Jesus, the teacher of wisdom, has imparted. So, consider the Sermon on the Mount now as wisdom literature. Throughout the sermon, Jesus has presented wisdom to us. He is the teacher of wisdom. Directly inferred from this presentation of Jesus is the idea that he is someone who has, in fact, attained wisdom himself. He knows the possible outcomes and he knows the paths which lead there. He knows what life is about and he knows then how life ought to be lived. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he is undoubtedly conferring that wisdom to his audience. Now, we might understand wisdom to be related to knowledge because knowledge is prerequisite to wisdom. Knowledge can be gained through listening to instruction, as in listening to the words of this sermon, or by experience, learning from the foolish mistakes. Wisdom, however, is bigger than knowledge because it is right living in response to right knowledge. So the responsibility of the teacher of wisdom is to impart the prerequisite knowledge for a life of wisdom. 
And one of the most uh, common methods of communicating wisdom is simply to compare and contrast. To compare and contrast between two options, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. The way of blessing and the way of sorrow. The way of flourishing and the way of death. And as we work now through the sermon towards Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27, Jesus' conclusion to the wisdom presented in the sermon, I want to highlight, and I'll highlight them briefly, the three motifs or tools that Jesus builds this wise sermon upon. The first is the first word of the sermon, and it is the motif or idea of blessedness. If you look back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he opens his mouth and teaches them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. You can understand the word blessed to have a broader meaning, including words like happy or flourishing in your definition. Now, we may want to read the Beatitudes as prescriptions for how you are to get the blessed life. But in fact, Jesus is not prescribing behavior. He is describing, even inspiring us with the fortunate end for citizens in His kingdom. The inference then is the means to arrive at this goal end of blessedness is by living today as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. Now, this this sermon in Matthew 5 begins with the same word, and it follows the same pattern as the first psalm, which is a psalm of wisdom. I'll read it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." Now, Psalm 1, like the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, is is not simply making a claim about how to get God's favor or blessing. Instead, it is an inspirational vision for the wise way of being in the world that will result in human flourishing. Jesus' teaching is the way of wisdom. So, in the kingdom of God, the poor in spirit... The mourners, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted for righteousness' sake, the reviled will, in fact, flourish, find happiness, and receive blessing. The story ends well for people who live in this otherworldly sort of way. Now, if Jesus is merely a wise teacher, And honestly, this makes no sense. Our response to him might be, those are nice words, Jesus, and I I like some of them, but they they don't work. Those kinds of people don't win. 
So in order for the wise teacher to in fact be wise, we need him to be more than just a teacher of wisdom. There needs to be some upending of the the way of the world. The second motif that we find ourselves um, seeing over and over again in the sermon is that of wholeness. Now, regarding Matthew 5, 48, I made the argument several months ago that the word teleos, which is translated as holy or perfect, is better translated as whole or complete. And in this instance, the teacher of wisdom was winking at some in his audience who were expecting him to quote Leviticus 19 to be holy as the Lord your God is holy while communicating something entirely different. Jesus, Jesus' Greco-Roman audience would have been familiar with the ancient Greek philosophers and their notion of teleosity or wholeness as it relates to the completion of virtue in a person. The thought of the philosophers was that someone who was lacking virtue in one area was not virtuous at all because one must be teleos, whole or complete in virtue in order to be truly virtuous. Now, the function of Jesus' use of teleos in Matthew 5.48 is to summarize all of what surrounds that verse in the context of the sermon. In Matthew 5, Jesus has walked through the greater righteousness that the citizens of the kingdom are expected to have. He moves from the particulars of your emotions or your anger, your desires, lust, your commitments, divorce, your words, oaths, your reactions, an eye for an eye, and your affections, love, to the universal, your whole self, all of you, your head, your heart, and your hands belong to the kingdom. All of you, your thoughts, your affections, and your behavior belong to Jesus. And in Matthew 6, Jesus continues moving from the outward behavior of the righteousness on earth before the uh, audience of man toward the inward heart or the whole person before God. The life that flourishes, the life that is truly blessed and happy, the life that God requires is one that is whole as opposed to duplicitous. Now, the call to wholeness in the sermon is certainly wise. It is perceptive and understanding. But if Jesus is merely a wise teacher, then this, and this call to wholeness is merely wisdom and nothing more than we are left puzzled by these words. We're left with the words of Jesus questioning the motives of our own heart with no one to speak to our heart. He has just removed the the one thing we were basing it all on, on how then shall we live, and says, no, look at your heart. So in order to actually hear the wisdom of this call to wholeness, we need someone who will speak to us and the condition of our hearts. We need Jesus to be more than just a teacher of wisdom. The third motif that Jesus uses in this wisdom literature is dualism. I mentioned it earlier. The Sermon on the Mount is full of it. And he uses this tool, namely the tool of comparing and contrasting two opposing ways. He applies it to the way of the kingdom with the way of the world, the way of kingdom citizens with the way of earthly citizens. 
This device, as I've already mentioned, is common in wisdom literature. And it's familiar to us through its frequent use in in, uh, ancient and contemporary Proverbs. It coincides with the idea of wholeness because the person who attempts to have both ways in the dualism is duplicitous and is not whole. So Jesus makes clear by his combination of these devices that you cannot both be whole and live in the middle between the two options that he provides. To be wise, you have to choose either all of it or none of it. So let's skim through the sermon, and I'll point out several of these dualisms so that you might not miss the fact that Jesus is calling his audience, you, to something extraordinary. In verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, you are salty salt, not flavorless salt. In 14 through 16, you're a city on a hill, not a lamp under a basket. In verses 17 through 19, Jesus is the fulfillment of law, not its abolishment. Therefore, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments will be called least. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. In verses 20 through 48, Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater, contrasting the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees with the righteousness, the greater righteousness required of kingdom citizens. And as we turn into chapter 6, those who practice their righteousness before others have already received their reward from man, their full reward. But those who are inwardly righteous will receive greater reward from God. In verses 19 through 34 of chapter 6, treasure on earth is destroyed, treasure in heaven endures. In chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, it is better to take the log out of your own eye than to take the speck out of your, own, of your brother's eye. And here, Jesus gets very clear in the middle of chapter 7. He uses dualism, and it cannot be clearer that there are, in verse 13 and 14, two ways. One is wide and easy that leads to destruction. And many find it. One is narrow and hard and leads to life, and few find it. In verses 15 to 23, which we discussed last week, there are two professions of faith. One is illustrative of wrong words and the right action, the other is of the right words and the wrong action, compared or contrasted with the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And now the final words of the sermon continue Jesus' juxtaposition of these two positions, two options, by now telling the tale of two builders, two foundations, and two outcomes, making clear that only one of them leads to flourishing. So here in Matthew 7, at the very end, is the climactic call to wisdom. Jesus, as the wise teacher, counsels us to inspect the foundation of our house. It doesn't really matter if the roof is new. If the house crashes, you will have much bigger problems. If the toilet's all flush, but your house is flushed into the bottom of the sea, then you are the epitome of a fool. The wisdom in Jesus' teaching in these verses is readily apparent, uh, even to children who are taught songs about the wise man who stood firm and the foolish man whose house went splat. 
My aim in this first dive into Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, is to highlight for you the wisdom of these words. Listen now as I read them again. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, this teaching of Jesus clearly fits within the scope of wisdom literature. He even uses the words wise and fool to describe the two builders. In this short story, Jesus compares and contrasts four things, the builder, the foundation, the storm, and the outcome. So the first contrast is between the wise builder and the foolish builder. Notice there is no average builder or normal builder or neutral builder. The quality of the builder is directly connected not to the fashion of the home, but to the foundation of the home. Either it is good or it is bad. So either the builder is good or the builder is bad. So as a teacher of wisdom, Jesus presents two categories of people, not not two categories of house. You'll notice that all of the things about the house is irrelevant. You cannot tell what the house is built upon just by looking at its exterior. And the quality of the builder is determined by Jesus' second contrast, the foundation of the house. In the first example, the foundation is a rock, something immovable, something resolute, something that anchors this builder amidst the storm. Surely this is a better foundation than its counterpart, which is the sand. And this is something that is, well, movable. Something that shifts. And the wisdom here is to consider all of the foundations that shift. Your spouse, your kids, your job, your political preference, your current definition of fun, your perspective on any current event, it will all shift. It will all change. So as Jesus continues with the parable, the wisdom is clear. You must build your life on something that doesn't move, something that is secure and sure. The third comparison is the storm that beats upon the house. And in this case, the storms are identical. Now to read this as wisdom literature is to suggest really a a smaller sense of a a practical sense of the storm. When the storms that life throws our way hit our house, it is better to have a house that is secure. When your friend attacks you, or a family member dies, or you lose your job, or Russia attacks, you need to be able to stand in that storm. For this would be better than for those storms to cripple or debilitate you. Now, I've already already tipped my hand at the final contrast. There are two ends, two outcomes, 
and two conclusions. The house of the fool who builds on the sand will fall. The house of the wise builder who builds on the rock will stand. The wise person, the person who obeys the words of Jesus, the person who is whole, is the blessed person, the one who flourishes and stands in the day of the storm. Wisdom, as I've said earlier, always has the end in view. And Jesus' teaching here is certainly wise. Now, this is one way to summarize the Sermon on the Mount. It is, it is a fair and a good reading because Jesus is wise. But it is an easy and perhaps incomplete understanding of what Jesus is intending to communicate. And in all, all honesty, this is why the Sermon on the Mount is so famous because it's wise teaching from a wise man. We understand it. It sits well with us. We like it. We read it and we get smarter. We make better choices because it is, well, wise. The quality of the teaching in this text transcends its own epoch. And the quality of life that's proclaimed in these words transcends all people in all places and in all times. Jesus is a uniquely wise teacher. Someone who could perceive the human condition, the human need, as well as the desired end for human flourishing. But I want you to notice what Matthew the narrator reveals about what Jesus' audience actually hears. Look at verse 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew goes out of his way in the conclusion to make it explicit that they heard him as someone who did not teach them as their scribes taught them. They did not just hear a better version of what they were used to hearing. There was something other, something revolutionary, something commanding about the way that Jesus spoke. He taught as one who had authority. Why does his authority matter? John Stott appropriately takes aim at people who agree with the sermon but reject the authority of Jesus. The right question to be asking is not, what is the teaching? But instead, who is the teacher? The credibility of the teacher changes everything about how you read and respond to the teaching. And the consensus felt by Jesus' audience was not that he was merely a wise teacher, but that he possessed authority. And they were astonished, literally dumbfounded, speechless. They could not respond. The contrast between the authority of the scribe and the authority of Jesus could not be more stark. The scribes in that day claimed no authority on their own at all. They conceived their role in terms of faithfulness to the tradition that they had received. So they were antiquarians delving into commentaries, searching for precedents, quoting other scribes that were more famous or popular than them. 
Their only authority lay in the authorities that they were quoting. A.B. Bruce summed up the difference by saying the scribes spoke by authority while Jesus spoke with authority. Now, if you're familiar with the prophets in the Old Testament, the most common phrase you hear over and over again is, thus says the Lord, which is a phrase that Jesus does not use in this sermon. Instead, he repeats the phrase, I tell you, thus daring to speak in his own name with his own authority, which he knew to be identical with the Father's. Commentators have searched for words to describe uh, the authority of Jesus' teaching. And they've tended to depict Jesus either as a lawgiver or as a king. Charles Spurgeon says of this teacher, He spoke royally, with royal assurance, or with sovereignty. Another expression was that he claimed the right to legislate for the kingdom of God while another combined the pictures of king and lawmaker by describing both his practical sovereignty over man's conscience, will, and affections, and his supreme moral authority, legislating without misgiving and demanding obedience. And John Calvin says that the crowds were astonished because of a strange, indescribable, and unwanted majesty drew to him the minds of men. The acknowledgement of Jesus' authority is not unique to the crowd's reaction here at the end of chapter 7 alone. Matthew builds on this theme throughout his writing. It becomes apparent that Jesus is no ordinary teacher and is no ordinary man. In Matthew 9, verse 6, Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. This was blasphemy. No one but God has the authority to forgive sins. Priests have authority to offer sacrifices, but to forgive? Jesus' claim is that His authority is otherworldly, authority that belongs to God alone. In chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus calls to him the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Arguably, only one who has authority with which to delegate is able to delegate that authority. But Jesus didn't only claim that authority. This is now between the sermon and Matthew 10. We have miracle after miracle of Jesus demonstrating his authority that he is able to delegate. And finally, the book of Matthew crescendos to these words at the end of chapter 28 where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus' final words, the end to which his ministry pointed, is dependent on his authority. And he demonstrates that his authority extends beyond all human worldly realm. And even the authority of heaven has been given to him. He is not a mere prophet. He is not a mere teacher. He possesses the actual, tangible, physical authority of God. Undoubtedly, if we we understand Jesus to be preaching with divine authority, The wisdom contained in this writing is not 
is not compromised. No, all of a sudden, the teaching of wisdom holds water. He is not just encouraging wise living as a mortal sage. He is declaring the wise life as the creator of life itself. And the voice of the teacher is the voice of a king inviting his listeners to a radically different, shockingly other kind of kingdom. So, what happens if we scan through the sermon again and hear it through a different lens, the the lens of Jesus as the authoritative king? There are three fundamental realities about the kingdom that Jesus summarizes in the Sermon on the Mount. And while his wisdom illustrates that they are not optional, his authority requires more than just that they're not optional. He requires obedience to the wisdom. The first way he describes the kingdom is as an upside-down kingdom. Now, what I mean by this is that life in the kingdom appears upside down to the way that you would expect the world to work. Because of Jesus' authority, however, you should understand his description of the kingdom to be right side up. Jesus' opening words in the Beatitudes describe the right side upness of the kingdom. He's not guessing at the prospect of a fulfilled life. He knows the fulfilled life. He is rewriting the human code. He's redefining what it means to be human. The clear example of this is is in his promise of happiness and blessedness to those who who do not get that in this life. The people in the bottom are in reality at the top. The people who lose in actuality win. The people who store up treasure in heaven are in actuality rich. The people who live quietly so as not to be praised by men, in actuality, receive the praise of God. And so as Jesus speaks with authority, we now recognize these words not as mere wisdom, but as a king proclaiming the new reality that he is inviting us to step into. The second way Jesus speaks of this kingdom is as an inside-out kingdom. And what I mean by that is that life in the kingdom begins on the inside and manifests itself on the outside. It begins with the heart, and the heart produces the life of the kingdom. Because of Jesus' authority as God, He has the right and the ability to interpret and fulfill Moses' law in order to create for himself a new people just as Moses' law established the nation of Israel as God's people. His means of creating this new people, his kingdom people, is by writing the law on their heart. Every kingdom that you could name, that is known to man. Even even the kingdom that the disciples and the people in Jesus' day expected the Messiah to bring is an outside-in kingdom. An outside-in kingdom is a conquering legislative entity that forces right behavior and its aim is the complicity of its citizens. An inside-out kingdom, however, is one whose formation and, and manifestation are entirely different. It begins with the willing participation of its citizens to live by its ethic. 
It grows as people bow to Jesus and join the crowd. And the flavor of the kingdom, the saltiness, the brightness shines outward in the world. And so as Jesus speaks with authority, we now recognize his call to wholeness, to internal transformation is not mere wisdom, but as a king inaugurating a new way of life for his people. And as he has done all along, it begins in the heart. The third way that this kingdom is represented in the Sermon on the Mount is as an already not yet kingdom. And what makes the inauguration of this kingdom so radical is the sense in which it is already and the simultaneous sense in which it is not yet. This is most clearly seen in Jesus' descriptions of reward, treasure, and judgment. Clearly, the kingdom is to have imminent, real-life application. But its application is never simply in the present. He always has a view of what is to come. The reason we are to care about the present is because we care about the future. And the reason he calls us to life as a kingdom citizen today is because it matters for tomorrow. Now I'll spoil it, but here is the end to which the call to bow to Jesus in obedience points. In Daniel 7:14 it says, and to the son of man was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In Philippians 2, it says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the kingdom into which he is inviting us. This is the kingdom which he is warning us is coming in full. So now, when we get to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus' final words in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear not the voice of the wise teacher, but the voice of the King of heaven and earth demanding that you determine today whether or not your knees will humbly bow to him today or crumple to your knees on that final day. Look with me at these words at the end of the sermon as the king's call to obey. With authority, the significance of Matthew 7, 24-27 cannot be overstated. Instead of the hearer alone being instructed to be the home inspector, not to lollygag with the care attended to the foundation, Jesus now speaks as the chief and final home inspector. You must examine the foundation because that is the determining thing that Jesus will inspect. 
in the final day of the storm. Listen closely. Don't dabble with what color of paint to put in the living area if your house will crumble. Consider then the comparison and the contrast, but hear it now through the lens of Jesus' authority. There is a wise builder and a foolish builder. The wise builder is the person who is in the kingdom. The foolish builder is the person who is outside the kingdom. Once again, their houses look the same. Meaning, just looking at the house is not preparation enough for the storm that is coming. You can't tell if it's going to stand just by looking at it. Just as you can't tell if you are in the kingdom or out of the kingdom simply by looking at your behavior. This is the warning. You need to inspect your house. And you need to inspect the right thing. The only thing that matters is its foundation. And so we're back at the foundation. The quality of the builder is determined by the second contrast, the foundation of the house. Now the rock is the same rock as before. It's something immovable, something resolute, something that anchors you amidst the storm. And Jesus describes how the wise man gets his house built on the rock. He says, the one who hears my words and does them. Jesus doesn't leave room for thinking pleasant thoughts about the Sermon on the Mount. He requires obedience. No distinction is helpful here. Is obedience to Jesus' words the foundation itself? Is obedience the sole mark of whether or not you're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? Clearly not. I've already stated it. The question that Jesus drives at is not what does this sermon or the words that are to be obeyed here say, but rather, who is Jesus? Clearly, he's already said in the sermon itself that you can obey and miss out on the kingdom entirely. So by his authority here, he is claiming that what you believe about Jesus, namely believing him to be who he really is, is the one foundation which is secure. Your obedience then is the act, the the physical outworking act of building upon that foundation. So if you know Christ and choose not to build that foundation, you are a fool. And if you do not know Christ and you're attempting to construct a house without a foundation, you're a fool. Only the house built on Christ will stand. Any other foundation will fail you. Even something that sounds as good as Jesus and, fill in the blank, will fail you. And it will fail you when you need it the most. The third comparison is that of the storm. Now, the storm here, it rightly includes the storms of life. That is a fine reading here. I have felt some of those storms this week. And this passage 
has rightly worked in my life by sending me down to the basement with a flashlight to inspect the foundation again. Perhaps you're in one of those storms. Don't worry about the house. Look at the foundation. You will find assurance there. Or you'll realize that you need to start over before it's too late. And I say before it's too late because for Jesus, these words are a gift. As the king of the ages, the beginning and the end, the judge, Jesus has in view a particular storm, a storm of particular significance, the day of judgment. And to consider that a lesser storm would cause you to inspect the foundation and give you reason to rebuild, to start over, is a grace. so that your foundation will not fail when you need it most. On that day, the fourth contrast is revealed. When that storm comes, all houses that are not built upon the foundation of Christ will crumble. All obedience that is not built on the foundation of Christ will crumble. All success that is not built on the foundation of Christ will crumble, and great will be its fall. But, because citizens of the kingdom believe Jesus is who he says he is, and do what Jesus says to do, they find their security in him. And with that, Jesus' teaching on the mountain is finished. And the crowds were astonished at his authority. The words of Matthew that begin the next chapter also serve as the bookend to Matthew's telling of the sermon. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus ascended the mountain, just as Moses ascended the mountain to receive the law from God in Exodus 19. But whereas in Exodus 19 it says that God came down to the mountain, in Matthew 8.1 it says that Jesus came down from the mountain. The same God that met Moses on the mountain has met with us. And we follow him down the mountain, astonished at the authority of the God who is with us. The kingdom has flesh to it. The law begins to break in and bring life as the kingdom of God expands, as we will now begin to see when we pick up in Matthew chapter 8. Also in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus saw the distant crowds and he approached them, whereas in Matthew 8, 1, the crowds follow him. Something happened to them there. And they were no longer mere spectators. They were followers. They did not have mere sentimental thoughts about the words they just heard, but they were compelled to fix their allegiance to King Jesus and follow Him. 
will you likewise follow him? Let's pray. Jesus, would you be for us a sure and steady foundation? Would you show yourself to be for us the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Would you graciously give us hearts that respond in faith eyes that see you for who you are, ears that hear your words and respond in obedience. Jesus, would you use that to produce something beautiful, to produce a life in us that is so otherworldly, that is so radically different, and yet so extremely secure that as we follow you down from the mountain, this kingdom would break in to every part of ordinary life in our lives and in those around us. Transform us with these words. Bring us to life with these words. And keep us. In your name, amen.